Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover, and since this is the first episode of this brand new podcast, let's talk a little bit about what we're going to be doing on this show. If you're anything like me, you're painfully aware of how little you actually know. You know, we all spend our lives peering out of our two little eye holes on this big, wild universe trying to make sense of it, but limited by our own narrow perspectives and the very short amount of time we have on Earth to learn about it. As a result, I find myself constantly hungry for new facts, new ideas, new ways of thinking that give me that wonderful feeling that everything I thought I knew was wrong. (laughs) Well, that's what this show is about. Every episode, me and my research team are going to bring you some fascinating information that'll blow your mind and get you started thinking differently about the world around you. And then I sit down with a scientist, scholar, journalist, even a Pulitzer Prize winner or two to go deep and share the revelatory new perspectives they've gained from a lifetime of research and study. And plus, you know, I toss a joke in there every now and again, try to keep it funny. If you're a curious person who never stops asking questions, I think this show is for you. But look, enough introduction, let's start the show. Imagine for a moment a faraway fantasy land with no ruler. Instead of a king or a queen or an archduke or even a baroness, this land is ruled by a magical scroll drawn up by a council of ancients. These saintly men, so the story goes, channeled the wisdom of the ages into their quills to create it. And for centuries later, the people worshipped this document as unique, unsurpassable, and even divinely inspired. There's just one problem. This magic scroll isn't, you know, infinitely long. It's just a couple dozen quatrains or so, so it can't possibly account for every single situation that confronts our fantasy land. And on top of that, some of its language seems a little, I don't know, vague? Like, you know, maybe the Council of Ancients didn't totally agree on every point? And different villagers, you know, reading the same magical scroll in good faith can come to different conclusions about what it means, and sometimes the conflict over the meaning of this scroll even begins spilling over into violence. So, what to do? Well, in this land came along a cast of holy, black-robed priests devoted to the magic scroll. We are the masters of the scroll, they declared. And everyone in the land was like, huh? Okay, I guess if you say so. And even though the magic scroll didn't explicitly say that these priests were the final word on what the scroll meant, that's what they became. 200 years later, they were still there, interpreting the meaning of the scroll from a cave deep in a magic forest or whatever. And whenever they issued a new proclamation, the people had no choice but to agree. Yes, that must be what the holy document said all along. Now, as you probably guessed, this land I'm describing is our land. This is uh, a lot like one of those young adult novels you would get in uh, the middle school library that was just a thinly veiled metaphor for modern life. Guilty as charged. I apologize. But I put it this way to point out that so much of what to us seems basic about the structure of our society is actually just a highly specific weirdness that we haven't thought enough about. As kids, we learn to revere that council of ancients as our founding fathers, even though they were just, you know, human guys cobbling together a government in crappy wigs with lice underneath. And we learn to revere the literal robe-wearing interpreters of the Constitution at the Supreme Court, even though the power the Supreme Court wields to strike down laws wasn't even in the Constitution. In fact, judicial review wasn't even a thing at all until the Supreme Court itself decided it was in Marbury v. Madison. Anderson in 1803. Even though the Constitution is a document that's defined by its amendments, it's easy for us to imagine it as static and timeless and otherworldly. 
There's a whole school of constitutional interpretation that's grown up around the original intent of the founders called originalism. Even though Thomas Jefferson himself once said, don't listen to us, we dead. Okay, that was a paraphrase. Here were his actual words. He wrote this in 1816. We might as well require a man to wear the coat which fitted him when a boy as civilized society to remain ever under the regimen of their barbarous ancestors. That's what Thomas Jefferson said. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a shared American mythology around our founding documents like the Constitution or our institutions like the Supreme Court. There's even an academic term for the jumble of symbols and rituals of the country that help bind us, civil religion. But our magic scroll idea of the Constitution, for whatever it gives us, also makes it harder to see how the real-world Constitution we have is the product of centuries of legal cases and precedents, all subject to the conditions and biases of the time in which they were made. And a lot of these stories of how our understanding of the Constitution changed end up being crazy and surprising. In fact, a lot of the central freedoms we ascribe to the Constitution didn't even exist for much of American history. Take the First Amendment's freedom of speech. We all learn in school that we have a free speech where one of the only limits on it is if it presents a clear and present danger, like shouting fire in a crowded theater. You may have heard of that. But that standard, which protects political advocacy, isn't even enunciated until 1919. It's easy to forget that level of protection has only been with us for the last century. So we shouldn't allow our mythology of the Constitution to blind us to the non-magical drama of different groups organizing and fighting for their interests and rights through the courts. When we believe too much in that magic scroll idea of the Constitution, we become the villagers in that faraway land, accepting that what the robed priests say is, is what should be. But if instead we look at the Constitution and the law as a historical process, we can ask questions like, how did it get to be what it is? My guest today is Adam Winkler. He's a law professor at UCLA, and his books include Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, and more recently, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won the Civil Rights. The way that he thinks about the Constitution will change the way that you think about it, dare I say forever, at least for the next six months, I would wager. With all that being said, let's get to the interview. Adam Winkler from UCLA, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. You've spent your professional career writing about the Constitution, writing about these issues. I guess my uh, my first question for you is, what is the Constitution? <laughs> <laughs> how, do you, how do you describe it in a way, if, you, if, if someone came from, uh, you know, an alien came down from space and said, how do you guys do the laws here? You know, what is this? What is this thing? Well, the Constitution is our founding document. And as our founding document, it establishes um, uh, the federal government and the relationship between the branches of the federal government and between the federal government and the states. As well, most famously, perhaps, the Constitution establishes a set of individual rights, rights that you can claim to prevent the government from doing certain things, uh, such as a right of freedom of speech that restricts the government from being able to censor you. <laughs> I feel very bad for asking you to do this. <laughs> I don't mind. It's Oh, a constitutional law professor. <laughs> I think this is the first time I've had to do that. Well, so what, what I wanted you to, to talk about is so often our understanding of what 
uh, our conversations about our rights in this country are based on what the founders intended, right? And so, for instance, our, our conversation about the Second Amendment is so specifically, here's what the founders did or did not intend. Uh, they did want you to have a Glock. They didn't want you to have an AR-15 or whatever. Um, and what you write about, what you came on to our episode of Adam Ruins Everything to help us walk through is how, no, we actually do know that they weren't thinking of, uh, they weren't thinking of that individual right to self-defense and that, and that there has really been a movement in this country that has enlarged that right. Um, and that the history of how that happened, we really, really rarely tell how that movement worked. Can you enlighten us? Well, yeah, no, I mean, the framers were really focused on militias. It's written right into the second amendment. And if you look at the founding era discussions about the right to bear arms, uh, they talked about the right to bear arms primarily within the framework of the militia. In part, that's a function of the firearm technology at the time. Firearms were not very useful for self-defense at the time. You couldn't store a loaded firearm in your home, for instance. The gunpowder was too explosive. So it would take you about a minute to, to load your firearm. So if you had a criminal climbing through your window, you, the firearm wasn't what you would use to protect yourself or your family. So that's right. not how we thought about firearms. But they were effective uh, for militia service. And uh, as firearm technology changed and firearms became more useful for individual self-defense, people started to reconceptualize the right to bear arms as about uh, people's ability to have guns to protect themselves and, and to defend themselves against criminals, uh, which was very far from what the founders were thinking about. And so how, how did that happen? How did we move from a culture where nobody really believed that the Second Amendment was about that individual right to one where, well, now a majority of Supreme Court justices do, and now, for all intents and purposes, that is what the Constitution now says because the Supreme Court has says that, said that's what it says. Well, I think it's the real product of a social movement to advance the cause of gun rights. Uh, and it's been a slow, steady growth. I mean, like I say, part of it's the technology of guns changed. Uh, and so, um, but for most of American history, the courts said that the Second Amendment did not protect a right to bear arms or protected a right that was somehow associated with the militia service only and didn't have much to say about ordinary gun control. And that really changed in 2008 with the, a 5-4 decision of the Supreme Court that said the Second Amendment did protect a right to keep and bear arms for individuals and to have guns in their home for personal protection. Um, and uh, indeed, the Supreme Court said the core of the Second Amendment was personal protection against criminals or in the case of confrontation. Again, not what the founders were thinking about when they wrote the Second Amendment. And so what really strikes me about that is that what you're describing there is, is a civil rights movement of a kind um, that's similar to uh, you know, in function to some of the other civil rights movements we had where a group says, no, we want to expand our rights. Um, but that's not the language that the gun rights movement uses. They say, no, this isn't a, this is a right that was granted to us by James Madison, et cetera. And we are simply protecting it. They don't describe it in terms of enlarging, but in terms of protecting. That's right. But they're enlarging and have and changing and growing with the technology. So even today, there's a big movement for um, uh, to say that permitless concealed carry is constitutionally protected, uh, that you have a right to carry a gun without a permit. Well, we've had required permits for 100 years in America, but this is definitely not part of the Second Amendment as uh, uh, under any court's understanding of the Second Amendment. But that's how people, some people view the Second Amendment and they're fighting for that view. Uh, there's a social movement to change how we think about the Second Amendment. That doesn't make it illegitimate. That makes the Second Amendment movement very similar to the civil rights movement, to the women's rights movement, to the LGBT rights movement, um, social movements that put pressure on the Constitution to protect uh, their mm. rights. 
Well, so let's let's make up for a second and talk about the Constitution specifically, because we have this uh, sort of folk notion of it as, you know, the founding fathers wrote this perfect document. Right. And we just need to follow the rules that they set down. And if we disagree about what they meant, you know, well, there's a right there's a right or a wrong answer about that. And we just need to follow what that is. And that that should sort of like determine the trajectory of of our, I don't know, legal life in America. Um, but then the more that I learn about it uh, and the more I learn about like where these rights actually come from, the more I realize like, oh, the story is much more complicated than that. And our sort of folk understanding of it is is way off base. Like, what do you think people misunderstand? What is the fundamental misunderstanding that we have? Well, our Constitution is unique in many ways. Our constitutional culture is unique. Unlike other cultures, we really do revere our constitution and use it as a, a point of argument in that, political debate and no matter what the issue is. The that's country. not true of other countries. No, it really isn't. It's very, very rare. Uh, there, you know, there are legal systems, but uh, and in Britain they have a constitution in some ways, but it's just not used in quite the same way. They don't revere it in the same. They're not ways. going. I mean, I've heard of the the Magna Carta is British, right? But they're not going like the Magna Carta says we must do X Y Z, right? It's just sort of like, oh, this is a thing that happened, right? And it was in Old English, so no one could understand what the Magna Carta <laughs> really is. It's like you'd say that with like the ya da, you know, so, yeah. Um, and, and, but uh, no, I, but I think that. Um, uh, but so we really revere the Constitution. It becomes that central point. But the reason why the Constitution can play that role in America is because it's filled with broad, ambiguous, vague terms like huh. due process of law, freedom of speech, equal protection of the laws, things that are hard to define and to pin down. And so they become they're capacious enough to hold so many of the disputes. We have whether it's same-sex mm. marriage or women's rights to choose or religious liberty to refuse to bake a cake for a same-sex couple, uh, Obamacare, environmental regulation—almost anything can fit in some way, shape, or form under the, one of the many very, very broad principles uh, established in our Constitution. And the reason why the Constitution, those pr broad principles, really continue to work is because we don't have an originalist system. You know, there are those like Justice Scalia who is famous for saying the only proper way of understanding the Constitution is in light of the original understanding of those terms at the time it was adopted and written. Um, and whatever you could say about whether that's the best way to think about the Constitution, it's actually not a very accurate way of understanding constitutional history. And constitutional history is one in which the, these principles in the Constitution have evolved, have developed, have had a life of their own, reshaped by generations of Americans year after year after year. And the Constitution we have has been amended a lot in really fundamental ways that mm -hmm. change what the framers did back in 1789 so, to 1791. So whether or not that originalist perspective, because we hear about that so much, and I, I think, I mean, maybe we're, maybe we don't quite have a majority of originalist justices yet, but we certainly have a number of them at this point, right? I mean, uh, or I, I, whether or not they call themselves that, that seems That's to right. be a, a much more dominant philosophy than That's it was. Right. But regardless of that, that's not the history of how the document's been understood in America is what you're saying. No, that's absolutely right. It's not a history. I mean, if we take a case like Brown versus Board of Education that said that racial segregation in schools was unconstitutional, right? Maybe the most important decision in Supreme Court history, a landmark case that brought down Jim Crow um, and did so much to advance the cause of civil rights. You know, the court opens up that opinion by saying, well, we can't decide this by looking at the history of – 
racial segregation back when the 14th Amendment to the Constitution right. was adopted, like, that would not be the way to understand the answer to that question. And I think we have a very complicated relationship. A lot, I think normatively, in terms of what we think the world should be, a lot of people think originalism is a pretty good argument. But when it comes down to actual outcomes, they might balk. So you take a case like same-sex marriage. There's no real plausible argument that the founders of the, the framers of the 14th Amendment intended it to protect or understood that it would protect same-sex couples in right. getting married. Um, but we today we understand that those basic principles of equality and due process can't be met if same-sex couples can't get married. So to keep up the value of the Constitution, you have to apply it to new circumstances. That's how you keep the Constitution alive. But isn't it odd that we have a system where our conversation about whether we should allow same-sex marriages or whether the state should, you know, validate same-sex marriages has to be had via the Constitution. Like, if we can say, okay, yeah, of course, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and all of them had no opinion on same-sex marriage, or if they did, they certainly didn't put it in the Constitution, right? But so why... Is it a good thing that our national decision to allow such marriages had to be done via interpretation of the Constitution? Isn't that odd? Like, since it had nothing to say on the matter, shouldn't we go about it a different way? Well, I think there are, you know, there are very good arguments that we should go about it a different way. And a lot of people think, well, we should just have uh, the we the people make these decisions through the democratically elected process. Right. Um, I think there's one advantage. We have a very, very divided nation. And yeah. because of federalism with the state powers that we have and states' rights, um, those divisions are baked in and they're really, really hard to change because we Californians, we have a lot of people in the country, but we can't change what's going on in Alabama very easily. Yeah. And and so one of the ways in which you get that kind of uniformity is when the Supreme Court comes in and provides that authoritative interpretation of the Constitution. I fear to say, and it's just a counterfactual hypothesis, that if the Supreme Court had never declared racial segregation in schools unconstitutional, we might still have some racially segregated schools in America. Well, we do. I, 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 mean, I, I have to I say think that's very possible. So. I have to say to that, I mean, we've done segments on on my show and, and on uh, other podcasts I've done that we do effectively oh, yeah. still have segregated schools. Um, and officially segregated. Yes. Like where by law, they're segregated. Legally no, no. segregated Pragma as opposed practically to- Practically speaking, you're right. I mean, the story of Brown versus Board of Education is actually a very complicated story yes. about whether it was successful or not because schools really uh, have- Resegregated in so many ways. Well, let's let's go back to that thing of originalism just for a second, because um, that really seems to that sort of philosophy uh, that hey, we should honor the founders' intentions, and that the that the Constitution is ultimately an authoritative document. Um, it seems that. Even those of us who maybe don't agree with Scalia um, on a lot of points um, still accept that philosophy in a deep way um, without even realizing it. Um, I was really struck by – I read a quote from uh, Thurgood Marshall, uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall, who wrote that uh, the Constitution was defective from the start, um, that in his view, if you're looking at it from his view, it's a document that uh, you know ratified slavery in many ways, that uh, didn't you know include full civic participation for a huge portion of the population um, and that, frankly, we added all of the features of the civil society that we, you know, hold as fundamental today, I think were, was his words, um, uh, ourselves, right, through new Supreme Court rulings, through legislation, through, you know, civic uprisings to demand change um, and that, therefore, 
you know, when we look, if you're looking from his vantage point, I mean, you know, Thurgood Marshall had, you know, <laughs> this is a man who, you know, uh, was defending, you know, people against lynchings and, you know, the, that history of the civil rights movement. Um, from his vantage point in history, he was looking back at the original document saying, hey, this document wasn't that great. Like it was a hey, good start. But we had a lot of work to do and we still do. Um, and that really struck me as such a uh, fringe opinion today in a way. Or you very rarely hear that opinion voiced. Um, I, th I thought that was so interesting. Right. And it is so interesting, too. And it captures kind of a, an interesting uh, sort of other side of uh, sort of the Hamilton phenomenon. Right? Mm. Because part of that Hamilton phenomenon has been about the idea that that even minorities can revere the framers, that they can be part of that story. They can be they can see themselves as part of that story and be participants in it in some ways. Uh, I think that's, you know, with the with Hamilton's multiracial cast and uh, use of hip hop and different techniques. And clearly the appeal has been to really broaden interest in the framers. Yeah. But some have criticized it as being sort of very much about revering the framers again and, and not telling the story of racial minorities at the time with any kind of vehemence in terms of slavery and whatnot. Hmm. And Marshall is a good reminder. Marshall had a such a complicated relationship with the Constitution. His greatest success was in using the words of the Constitution to fight against segregation uh, and to use the Supreme Court uh, to uh, end Jim Crow laws. It's one of the great successes we've ever seen in American history. Uh, and yet he s understood how deeply flawed the document really was. And that's kind of complexity and nuance that we just don't see much today. Yeah. But the, the something that really strikes me, though, is, OK, so if you're Thurgood Marshall and you're ruling on, you know, civil civil rights cases, it sounds to me like almost what you're saying is that the Constitution, the reason we debate about it so much is that there's so much spirit of the law in it and not so much letter of the law. And so you can look at it and say, well, this it has a clause about this or that. So um, therefore, we should, you know, strike down uh uh, uh, school segregation because that that seems to be f uh, contrary to the spirit of the document and to this phrase rather than the intentions or like the very legalistic reading right um, uh, and that's that's the reason we should we should expand those rights um, but then you've got another group of folks saying no no we should we should look at the founders intention uh, intentions very specifically the contrast that's really striking to me is that uh, for an issue like gun rights, for instance, um, which is so often phrased as the founding fathers intended this or that, the the history of the Second Amendment is also one of expanding uh, expanding rights through Supreme Court cases. Um, but uh, the way that the folks doing the expanding talk about it is so much rooted in originalism rather than in uh, an expansion of the document. Yeah, no, I think that's a, and that's a very it's a it's an astute observation that um, those who are the most vehement Second Amendment advocates use the language of originalism and the founders' intentions behind the Second Amendment to promote a view of the Second Amendment that's very different from the one that the founders had. Um, the founders were primarily concerned with militias, and they believed that the right of the people to have keep and bear arms was important primarily so that people could serve in state militias. And they were fearful that the federal government would use its power as granted under our, uh, Article One of the Constitution um, to call forth the militias of the states. And some people fear that they would disarm those state militias um, and be tyrannical. And so uh, the right to bear arms was focused on the militia uh, at the time of the founding. Um, that doesn't mean it's not an individual right. It's just the way they understood the right to be important was because of service in the militia. Firearms, you had an, you had an individual right to have a firearm so you could be in a militia? 
Yeah. But, you know, it seems crazy to you now because you're, militia is such a far part. It's so far removed from our experience. But yeah. in the founding era, remember, they didn't have police. They didn't have a standing army. They were constantly threatened from foreign gov- foreign countries, the hostile natives. You know, people had to call forth the militia. Part of your militia. Yeah. You know, if you were a young man, if you're a young strapping age, Adam, <laughs> not my old age, you'd be a member of the militia and you'd be called out on a regular basis. I would be the worst militia member. I, I would be know. way in the back dragging my feet. I don't know. You'd <laughs> like, be right I don't there. want to shoot anybody. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. The guns then were so highly inaccurate. <laughs> One of the things, that, and that's the thing. I mean, the firearms of the time were useful for some purposes, but not very useful for personal defense against a criminal in yeah. your home. But you couldn't store a firearm at the time loaded because it was just too dangerous. The gunpowder was too explosive. It'd just go off. And it'd take you about a minute to load your firearm. <laughs> and if you were an expert, you could get it done a little bit quicker, but it would take you a little <laughs> time to lower it. To Honey, what's it. that sound? I hear I hear a cat burger. Right, okay, yeah. give me about five minutes to yeah. go get the powder and load it and put the wadding in and the, the thing is blah, blah, blah. Okay, and then you go down. Uh, by then, you've already been robbed. <laughs> yeah. The guy's gone. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. With your wife, you know. <laughs> Uh, no, exactly. So, so they didn't understand firearms in quite that way, and that wasn't really until the 1820s and 1830s when you developed the the, the handgun was further developed, and Samuel Colt developed his repeating handgun. Um, that you really saw the spread of a firearm that was useful for personal defense. Right, the handgun wasn't even invented. I mean, there was a handgun. Okay. Yeah, there were handguns. Okay, but they had to be loaded in the same way that you'd load other right. guns, and you know, through the barrel. And it wasn't it wasn't what you know. Samuel Colt was the one who was famous for, yes. he did, wasn't quite the inventor, more the popularizer, but mm-hmm. um, uh, of the firearm that really you could carry, you could keep loaded, and you could use it for personal defense. And so Got our it. conception of firearms changes as the technology of firearms changes. And right. the militias run, you know, go by the wayside. They're not part of our lives anymore. So of course we don't think about the militias anymore because they're not part of our lives. And so our understanding of the Second Amendment is primarily about protection of self-defense against a criminal. What? Is it's just not the way the framers understood it. So sometimes you hear that comparison to the constitutional provision about not having troops quartered in your home um, as being, you know, this is a similarly old fashioned concern. Do you agree with that? Um, I, yeah, I think the framers' concern was an old-fashioned concern these days. It's not the present concern. I think now people really are much more concerned about defending themselves against criminals and yeah. having that fundamental right. And I could see, you know, look, there's certainly a plausible argument that, look, we have a society in which there's a lot of firearms. If you don't give people the right to have a firearm for self-defense, then they really do put themselves at uh, the risk of victimization at the hands of criminals and whatnot. And uh, what, you know, protecting your per, your liberty and your property and your home and your family. I mean, those are important values and they're the kinds of things that wouldn't be far-fetched for a constitution to protect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, so it's not a far-fetched understanding of the constitution, but I think it really it's really a, just a function of how we the people have changed and our views of, con- of, the, of yeah. the right has changed and the purpose of guns have changed. And, and they're still changing. Today, we see a very vibrant move to say that the Second Amendment protects a right to carry a gun in public without a permit. That's not grounded in American history at all, where mm. we've always required uh, – over the last hundred years, we've always required permits. You didn't require permits back in the founding era, but uh, that was a totally different era, right, when yeah. uh, different concerns about the nature of firearms. So um, – uh, and soon, you know, that might be part of the Constitution, you know? So that – so that oh, that's interesting. You say it might be part of the Constitution because the Supreme Court might rule to essentially say that it is. 
Yeah, because you know the the Constitution is really reshaped by social movements. So yeah. the Civil Rights Movement reshaped the Constitution uh, away from a document that supported Jim Crow to a document that didn't support Jim Crow. The Women's Rights Movement has also changed the Constitution in various ways. The Gay Rights Movement has changed the Constitution too. Um, but it's not just liberal progressive movements, right? There have been conservative movements. We're seeing movements today very vibrant for religious conservatives, um, and they're getting their rights protected by the Supreme Court in cases like the Hobby Lobby case where the court said that a um, corporation with religious owners could be exempt from Obamacare requirements to cover birth control for right. employee health plans. Um, religious liberty rights for bakers who don't want to provide same-sex uh, couples with a wedding cake. Um, these are examples of social movements that are putting pressures on the Supreme Court through the, per, you know, through the presidency and through who gets per, picked as personnel, and they change the law. And what's so striking to me is that when you describe it that way, um, uh, it makes me realize, oh, these are broadly conceived. These are civil rights movements. These are movements of people arguing for a certain conception of civil rights that they want to be expanded, and they want to do it through the courts and the Supreme Courts. Um, uh, but we never think of them that way, and they don't even frame themselves that way because we think of a civil rights movement as being, oh, that's a movement that's asking for an expansion of a right. But then there are these, you know, with the Second Amendment in particular, they're, they're, they frame it as, no, we want to protect a right that we have always had the whole time um, and sort of present a revisionist history of, no, no, this is the way things have always been. I mean, the you know, the NRAs, for instance, uh, materials explicitly give that framing. Like, they've, they could frame themselves like the ACLU does or like the ends and AACP does and say, no, 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 we want to expand rights for gun owners because this is so important. Um, and we think that that, uh, you know, uh, is the spirit of America, if not the founder's original intention. But instead they, they say, no, no, here's a quote from such and such founding father that we have taken out of context to, to say, no, no, this is the, he always intended that you should be able to carry an Uzi around in your trench coat. Right. Um, uh, and why do you think that that is, I think, because they can make a plausible claim. And they can tell a plausible story. And I think there were, you know, if the if same-sex marriage advocates could find something in the original history of the 14th Amendment about someone talking about uh, gay rights and about same-sex marriage and being pro, they would go back and say, hey, look, we can – there's actually original <laughs> intent that this was designed yeah. to protect us. So you find that to be a credible claim? Well, no, I mean, it's – Or at least plausible. What I, I don't want to say is that, that it's a credible claim. I think that, that there's a lot of misuse of history by mm -hmm. the NRA for sure, and I document that a lot uh, in my book, Gunfight. Um, but I, I do think that – you've asked me why they make those originalist arguments, I and I think it's because they can, because there is uh, – it is a text that is written into the Constitution, that there are founding – quotes from the founding fathers talking about the important uh, importance of the right to keep and bear arms that can be taken and used out of context. Whereas you just don't have them for abortion rights. You don't have them for same-sex marriage rights. You don't have them right. for um, protection of the environment. Uh, and so uh, it's harder for many of the progressive civil rights movements to use originalist arguments because they're not using anything that can be misused. There's right. no, there's nothing that they can be easily misused from the founding eras. But, uh, you know, look, I think so right now we're seeing litigation over the emoluments clause. So these are clauses of the Constitution that restrict the president from being able to 
take pay in addition to his salary. And right. there's some issues with Donald Trump. And what you see, actually, if you look at that litigation, is a bunch of people who are trying to hold Trump accountable are using originalist evidence about the meaning of the emoluments clause. Mm. Why? It's not because they're all devoted originalists. It's because there is a plausible argument that they've got some evidence they can use. And so right. you, you add it to the series of arguments you make. It's a powerful kind of argument to say, hey, we've always had this. Don't take this away from me. We're persuaded by that kind of argument. So yeah. you, you do it if you've got something you can use. And fundamentally, that's what a lawyer does. A lawyer looks for an argument that they can make that people will find plausible that that they can advance and hopefully wins. Yeah, that's right. And lawyers, and and frankly, we all kind of do that, right? Yeah. That's what people do. And, you know, I think the gun rights movement keeps talking about originalism because it's kind of worked for them so far. And if it weren't working for them, then they talk about a different argument. But what that puts into perspective is that all of these changes are things that Americans are doing today in real time. Americans are advancing these legal arguments, right? Um, and about some of them, again, about the Second Amendment, we root it so firmly in the past, right, um, that we don't get to have that conversation about, uh, you know, the effects of the change that is being proposed or the reasons behind the change that is being proposed or the methods that are being used, right? Instead, we instead we get stuck in this conversation about, like, what James Madison thought about firearms, um, which is – uh, that that was what a big part of that episode of Adam Ruins Everything was about was trying to sort of dispel that, you know, that bit of the conversation and and you know as best as we could do in seven minutes say hey hey here was the actual history of it so that we could talk about the actual present day conversation we need to have and that's something that I think one of the attractions of making these history based arguments are for the NRA because if you can say look this is a right and it's protected we don't have to analyze the public policy questions we don't have to ask how many people's lives are lost or would be saved by a particular gun control law because hey it's all unconstitutional we have this right we've always had this right so we don't want to talk about the public policy it's easier to talk about history than to talk about what we can do to reduce gun violence, especially when your whole theory is, well, a good guy with a gun is better than the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun, yeah. uh, which is not uh, a real great policy for, uh, uh, you know, for uh, gun violence prevention as a general matter. Um, so, you know, uh, there, that definitely uh, does distract us. When we talk too much about history, we're not talking about some of the issues that really matter, which is what is the effect on people and uh, how is our society going to continue to move forward? But we should understand the Constitution as a function of democracy. And the Second Amendment's a really good example. Uh, the Second Amendment, you know, has a law as an individual right to bear arms, has a lot of support in America. And yeah. among those who do support it, they support it intensely with great um, passion and uh, devotion. And that makes a big difference in a democracy. Yeah. I mean, that's what talking to you makes clear to me. Because again, I get stuck in the terms of that debate, too, thinking about, wait, no, the founding fathers didn't intend this or that. You know, we have to update our laws, yada, 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 right? But if you look at, look, the, the power of the civil rights movement that we normally talk about, the, the uh, you know, uh, the movement to enlarge African-American rights in America, because of the power of that movement, you know, if you're alive during that time, you're looking around, and you're like, oh, holy shit, there's a lot of people who really care about this and they're fellow citizens and like fundamentally they're not ignorable, right? Um, 
And we tend not to remember that about the Second Amendment conversation. That um, that was one of the things that struck me when we were researching that episode was, you know, okay, we can talk all we want about James Madison, but, oh, hold on a second. There's millions of Americans who feel very strongly about it and have waged a legal battle over decades to enlarge their rights. And that's is similar in function to uh, uh, the way it worked as to some of these other battles. Um, and that means I have to grapple with it in a different way if I disagree. Right. Well, I think one of the things it means is just that is that you have to think about organizing politically. Uh, I think that, look, the NRA is strong not because of the Second Amendment. The Supreme Court has read the Second Amendment very narrowly. It says it is an individual right to bear arms, the court said in 2008, but said it only protected your right to have a handgun in the home and left most of the questions open. And courts have upheld a wide variety of gun violence prevention laws from restrictions on military-style rifles and high-capacity magazines and universal background checks and all sorts of different laws red flag laws. Um, the courts reading the Second Amendment haven't been the main barrier to gun control in America. The main barrier has been the NRA and the gun lobby working with pro-gun voters uh, who are really passionate about this issue right. to get protections in the law through legislation, through yeah. elected officials. And that's much more powerful. And they haven't had to rely on sort of a legal, legal interpretation of the Second Amendment. That's why I think when people like uh, Justice Stevens, retired Justice Stevens, came out and said uh, that we need to repeal the Second Amendment, I think that's the wrong uh, attitude, mm. even if you want more gun violence prevention laws, because the courts aren't the ones standing in the way of good gun laws. It's the NRA and elected officials who are beholden to the NRA and the voters, the pro-gun voters out there. Yeah. And they use, it's interesting because they'll use the Second Amendment as their argument for doing that. We need to pass these laws because the Second Amendment says X, Y, Z, but that's not the actual means that they're using. They're passing legislation or they're preventing legislation from being passed. Um, so whether or not we were to repeal the Second Amendment, like the work that if you're someone who wants more gun control needs to be done on the ground is in state legislatures and is in the court of public opinion. Yeah. And if you don't want the Supreme Court to be interpreting the Second Amendment broadly to strike down things like assault weapons and bans on assault weapons or bans on high capacity magazines, you really need to fight for um, elected officials who are going to promote those kinds of laws, uh, fight for a president who's going to appoint a justice who thinks about the Second Amendment uh, in less expansive NRA friendly terms. And, and that's how you're going to get that change if, you know, the political process represents itself in a lot of different ways. And uh, the NRA is now winning in the courts. And this may, uh, the Supreme Court has just recently taken a big Second Amendment case that it's going to hear in the fall. Uh, and it could mean um, new barriers to gun control nationwide. Uh, and that's a result. That case, though, is a result of the NRA's political activism. It's a result right. of the NRA um, being a big Donald Trump backer and Donald Trump winning that election and then winning all these Senate races with pro-gun candidates. So that when Brett Kavanaugh comes up for nomination, he goes right through and they know exactly they're getting a big, strong pro-gun uh, vote on the Supreme Court. So that's how political pro the political process works. And constitutional law is just one product of the politics of America. That's that's such that's so much more of an expansive view of how we interact with the Constitution as a as a nation that the, what you just laid out really shows how the sort of day to day politics of the country matter for what we end up deciding the Constitution means. Right. But again, our sort of national mythology is that, no, no, no the founders wrote it. The Supreme Court tells us what they wrote and that's it. Done deal. Right. Um, is there something, and you've said that that's different from, from other nations. Is there something in 
the American character or the American spirit, in your view, that causes us to think of the Constitution in that way, uh, in that fixed way of, hey, it's the Ten Commandments that was given to Moses on the mountain and we just need to obey it and and uh, understand it? Well, you know, I come at these things kind of from a historian's lens, and I think mm-hmm. these things are just very historically contingent. I think in part, a big part of the story in America is that in early America, there were ma- massive battles over slavery, and the southern states had protections built into the text of the Constitution right. to protect slavery. And because slavery became such a huge issue. It became a valid and easy strategic defense for the South to say, hey, no, we have this constitutional protection. We have this constitutional protection. So I think it's just a function of, well, it was the nature of that particular battle that arose at that particular time. Had had we not had battles over slavery in the early 1800s, maybe we wouldn't be a society that reveres the Constitution nearly really? as much. Yeah, and then we changed the Constitution after the Civil War, and um, uh, you know, we, we've constantly built up a constitutional reverie by changing it time after time after time. Um, and we still do it. Uh, we still seek our change. Uh, it seems like the the right of same-sex marriage is not really complete until the Supreme Court says, ah, yes, you have that right. So it's become part of our nature and our culture, but I don't think there's anything necessary about it. It's just a historical accident. That's so fascinating. Well, that's a really good note to take a break on. We'll be right back. You know, if you're listening to this show, I think it's a fair bet that you like using your brain, and I'd even go so far as to wager that there's a kid in your life who also loves using their brain. Well, next time you're shopping for a gift for said kid, might I suggest getting them a subscription to KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about STEAM fun. And no, I don't just mean, you know, the hot gas that comes out when you use the shower too long. I'm talking about science, technology, engineering, art, and math. That kind of STEAM. With a KiwiCo co-subscription, each month that whippersnapper is going to receive a fun, engaging new project that will help develop their creativity and confidence. They have kits for all ages, and every crate includes all the supplies needed for that month's project. Detailed, easy-to-follow instructions, and an educational magazine to learn even more about that crate's themes. Man, I had so many wonderful educational magazines growing up. I wish I could read an educational magazine right now. Is this, this is getting me excited. If you're getting as excited as me, you'll be happy to know that you're doesn't just have crates for kids. They also have subscriptions for the tantalizing age range, 14 to 104. That's right. Adults, you can build some cool steam projects yourself. They got one where you build a goddamn ukulele. That's right. Not only can you learn to play the ukulele, you can build your own instrument and then learn to play. That sounds like... A wonderful Sunday to me. KiwiCo inspires kids and adults to see themselves as makers, and it's on a mission to empower kids not just to make a project, but to make a difference. And get this, KiwiCo is offering Factually listeners the chance to try them for free. Just go to KiwiCo.com slash Factually. That's right, KiwiCo.com slash Factually. Check them out. You'll be glad you did. Hey, everybody, Away offers high-quality luggage at a much lower price by cutting out the middleman and selling directly to you. You know when you're trying to buy luggage and there's a middleman in the way, and you're like, oh, my God, someone get this middleman out of here. Well, that's what Away did. They kicked him in the butt and sent him to the curb, and he's never allowed back inside. With Away, you can choose from nine colors and four sizes. The carry-on, the bigger carry-on, and both of those are compliant with all major U.S. airlines, the medium, or the large. Their suitcases are made with premium jewelry. 
German polycarbonate. Everyone knows the Germans grow the best polycarbonate in Europe, and it's lightweight and unrivaled in strength and impact resistance. And it's got 360-degree spinner wheels so you can drag it in any old direction. And they got a lifetime warranty, so if anything breaks, they'll fix it. And they've got a 100-day free trial, so if at any point you decide it's not for you, you can return it for a full refund, no questions asked. Unlike all the questions the middleman will have to face when he goes home to his wife and has to explain why he's suddenly out of a job. They are giving a special discount to Factually listeners. To get $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash factually and use the promo code factually during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash factually and use the promo code factually for $20 off. And now back to the show. I'm here with Adam Winkler. Thank you for being here, by the way. Thanks so much for having me. What a pleasure. <laughs> so you've you've written two uh, really, uh, I think, sort of mind-changing books about America's legal history, Gunfight, about guns. You have a new book, uh, We the Corporations, um, about the battle that corporations have waged to increase their own rights through American history. And this is a conversation that we are kind of having nationally, but in a very, I think, kind of narrow way where it's mostly just, hey, Mitt Romney said corporations are people. And then occasionally, like, someone will play that clip and get mad about it. on No, they're not, you know, or whatever. It's like, and that's about it. But uh, you have a much more sort of nuanced account of that history, which I find really fascinating. Can you... Yeah, well, you know, for all the debate over whether corporations are people, that's really stimulated by the Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court. 2010, the court held that business corporations have the same right under the First Amendment of free speech uh, to spend their money on election ads. And, you know, people are really validly concerned about this is going to lead to a big corporate takeover of American democracy, <laughs> as if they didn't take over democracy a long time ago. <laughs> um, but uh, um, uh, and in recent years, the Supreme Court has held that corporations have religious liberty rights. For instance, in the uh, case of a baker who refused to bake a cake for a, a same-sex couple, um, the court said that- Hobby Lobby as well. And the Hobby Lobby case as well. And so we have a series of these cases, and I decided to look into the history. And what I found was really remarkable, which is that corporations um, today have nearly all the same rights under the Constitution as you and me. And even though the Constitution wasn't written to protect business corporations, they have fought for over 200 years to win all the same rights as people under the Constitution. Um, and, you know, they don't march in the streets the way the Civil Rights Movement did or the way the Women's Rights Movement did, uh, but they have fought in the Supreme Court a very, very successful campaign to win the protections of so many of our individual rights. And they use those protections to fight back against laws regulating business and regulating the economy. Yeah, and what you write in your book is that the idea that corporations are people is a little bit of a red herring because at times they'll argue, oh, no, corporations are people, corporate personhood, which is does sort of have a legal basis. But then other times they'll say, no, 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 we're not people because that actually benefits us in this case to not be treated as people. Is that the case? That's right. People misunderstand the corporate personhood idea. It's actually very essential to basic business law. It's the same idea that says shareholders have limited liability because they don't have the same liability as their corporation. Corporate personhood means that a corporation has its own independent identity in the eyes of the law and it stands with its own rights and its own duties. So if you slip and fall at Starbucks, you have to sue Starbucks the corporation. You can't can't sue Howard Schultz. Uh, <laughs> you, you have to sue uh, the company because they're, it's a separate legal person with its own legal responsibilities to keep you safe. Um, and so corporate 
corporate personhood is really well established in the law, I think what people are really reacting to is the idea that corporations have the same fundamental rights as you and me, yeah. uh, especially when it comes to things like political freedom and spending their money. Um, and, and I think that's really what people get uh, upset about. And what I really show in my book is that um, there's a lot to be upset about, that if you the, the corporations have been winning uh, the rights of individuals for a long, long time and in many ways have been much more successful at huh. winning rights than African-Americans or women. It's almost a parallel kind of quiet civil rights movement for corporations specifically. That's right. I mean, it's, we don't, they don't march in the street corporations. You know, you don't see the Michelin man <laughs> with a sign saying corporations are people too, you know, um, but they have financed high, uh, high risky litigation uh, to win the basic protections of the constitution. From the early days, they were trying to fight against taxes and would use provisions of the constitution to fight back against taxes. The railroads uh, use the constitution to fight back against uh, regulation of them. Uh, when Teddy Roosevelt um, tried to break up the tobacco trust, the tobacco companies tried to use the constitution to protect them from his investigations. So corporations have used the Constitution aggressively over the years to uh, fight back against uh, regulation and um, and populists who want to regulate corporations. Often I wonder, how should I even think of what a corporation is, you know, as a legal entity or a social entity, you know, um, because there's a certain extent to which it's like, well, uh, a corporation is just a group of people, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a, it's not some monster from space, right? <laughs> right? We talk about that, cor- you know, too much corporate influence in our democracy and, and et cetera. But at the same time, like, well, hold on a second. Cor- corporations are just groups of people who have associated for a particular purpose in the same way that a labor union is a, is a collection of, of workers who are advocating for their, for their benefits. But there's – it specifically often seems as though corporations take on a life of their own, right? That they that they start to they, – they outlive any one group of people and start to uh, uh, take on their own agency in this strange way. That's right. I mean the cor- idea of the corporation goes back a long, long way. And surprisingly, it's really intimately tied to the idea of a corporation having rights. Hmm. So the first corporations were formed in ancient Rome 300 years before the birth of Christ um, and – and Romans developed the corporation to solve a basic problem. They had partnerships, but the partnership, every time a partner would die or wanted to sell their shares of the partnership, the whole partnership had to be reorganized. All the all the deals had to be renegotiated and everything. And so they wanted to create some kind of form where people could pool their money together, invest it as a common resource, and it would go and do something. And if someone needed to, if someone died, you didn't have to reorganize the whole thing. And so the idea was you'd create this entity that could hold the property of all these other people. Uh, and use it and invest it. And corporations were used by the Romans for all sorts of different things from uh, mining and building aqueducts and things like that. And in fact, corporations from the get-go were very, very successful. And uh, they recently were doing a study of ice core samples from Antarctica, and they found these ice core samples from early before the birth of Christ, and they found evidence of widespread global pollution caused by Roman mining corporations operating 300 years before the birth of Christ. (laughs) That's incredible. So these corporations were, from the get-go, endangering human human health and changing the environment. Changing the climate. Wow. That is wild. Uh, did they, did they laugh? I mean, because one of the things I think is interesting about corporations, they tend to, 
they tend to outlast individual people and they start to get their own incentives and their own desires and their own wants and, and their own needs that, you know, uh, you know, IBM sort of operates the way that it does apart from who is running it and apart from what the shareholders want. It's like this entity that is going to survive, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's sort of, there's a couple ways to think about it. The, the corporation is immortal, right? The corporation, because it survives, even if someone transfers out or dies, that gives it its immortality. Whereas a partnership only can survive as long as the partners are still alive. Right. Um, once the partners die, the partnership dies too. Um, but the corporation lives on. That's the beauty of the corporation in some ways is that it can survive that kind of disruption within its membership. When I think but, about when I think about what that means, it almost reminds me the most of like almost the Catholic Church or something like that. That it's this. Entity. Well, and the Catholic Church was widely understood to be a kind of corporation. Mm. Uh, that is a person with its own independent identity in the eyes of the law that had the right of property. So it could hold the property um, of the church regardless huh. of the identity of the members of the church. It didn't matter who came in or who came out. It didn't right. matter who was the pope or who wasn't the pope. Um, no one thought that when the, someone became the pope that all of the property of the church was now the personal property of the person who was the pope. Right. Uh, and that if he stopped becoming the Pope, he could take the property with him. Right. No, he, it would belong to the church. So that's the idea that the corporate entity had rights and rights of uh, property. And that today, there were, you know, in ancient England, there were a lot of different kinds of, uh, of corporations uh, for all different sorts of activities. Today, we think of corporations in business terms, in terms of a business corporation, but there's still a lot of different kinds of corporations. We talk about incorporated cities. We talk about often religious organizations or corporations and many non Nonprofits are corporations too, Planned Parenthood or the NRA. They're both corporations, not yeah. business corporations, but both have that idea of their independent identities in the eyes of the law that have the ability to own property and to file contracts and uh, sue and be sued in courts. Right. But uh, business corporations seem to, there seems to be something about business corporations that has caused them to be A, incredibly successful and incredibly uh, powerful. You know, for instance, the LA Public Library, right, it has existed since, you know, the mid-19th century. It's, I assume, a, a corporation by this broad definition in some way. And it has wants and needs, you know, like it wants, but its wants and needs are structured. I assume there's a charter somewhere that says what its what its goal is. And so it maximizes the services that it provides to, you know, the, the people of Los Angeles. A corporation is, is around, you know, is organized around maximizing, I suppose, its profit for its shareholders. Something about that structure seems to cause, what, what about it causes them to advocate for rights in this way. It's not really the corporate structure, because as you say, there's lots of other corporations that don't pursue pathological profits. <laughs> um, it's actually baked into the business corporate structure of America, is that mm. we, and, and not in terms of the structure of a corporation, but of a business corporation, we require corporations to pursue profit. That's the a legal mandate. You know, corp it's one thing when we think about the freedom of corporations and whether corporations should have freedom of speech. You know, generally we think that someone might have a freedom of speech because they have autonomy. And that's a reflection of their autonomy, that they get to make these kinds of decisions for themselves. No one gets to tell you what to believe. You get to believe what you want. No one gets to tell you what to say. You can say what you want. There's a, a sense of autonomy. Business corporations are fundamentally not free in that way. They are huh. legally required to pursue profit, that if the management of corporations don't pursue profit in the long run, um, they're violating their fiduciary duties to shareholders. They can be
be sued for that. Right. Um, and so we have a we've these are legal organizations that are legally compelled to pursue a kind of profit. And I tell the story in my book, We the Corporations, about uh, a particular moment in American history in the 19 uh, teens where Henry Ford was trying to use his Ford Motor Company uh, to do more than pursue profit, to help out consumers, to help out workers. And he devised a business plan that didn't involve maximizing profit. And uh, a court struck it down uh, wow. in large part because it wasn't uh, dev- designed to promote shareholder welfare. And that's a key turning point that changes the nature of our corporations in, in fundamental ways. And to this day, even if there's a little wiggle room in the corporate law, our corporate culture is that corporations, uh, business corporations should maximize their profit. Well, yeah, and that mirrors you know, some of the corporations that – I have loved in my past, right? You know, like there's certain, there's certain corporations that, you know, I'm like, oh, this, this corporation actually does a lot of good, you know? Um, for instance, I, I don't know, a, uh, you know, a magazine that, you know, really prioritizes the quality of the, of the literary work that they publish as opposed to the, uh, you know, the amount of money that they make, for example. Um, businesses like that, I've noticed this pattern where, well, they tend to falter a little bit and then they get bought out and then they're reconfigured to maximize profit. And you're like, oh, this thing that I loved that maybe wasn't making that much money, but was, you know, kind of nice, right? Um, or was doing some good has now, you know, turned into this sort of rapacious organization or newspapers as another example of, you know, uh, well, the local paper, you know, is going to get bought out by, you know, trunk or whatever and, you know, cut down so it makes as much money as possible. Um, that's actually, you're saying, a necessary part of what a corporation is uh, legally almost. Well, I mean, it's at least the way we do it here in America, mm. right? Uh, and there have been efforts to try to think about corporations in more capacious terms to uh, be serving the interests of stakeholders more generally. And, and even moments in American history where there was a real effort to regulate all business corporations. I tell the story in my book of a uh, of a great case back in 1819, way back in early America, involving the perhaps the greatest advocate in Supreme Court history, Daniel Webster, who was known to be a great orator, and he argued more than 200 cases in the Supreme Court. And he argued a key case early in America where the court was really deciding, is a corporation a private entity, like an individual with rights, or is it more like a public agency, like a government agency that the, 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 that the Congress or the legislature can revamp and reform and can you know, reshape the way it wants. Uh, and Webster argued for the latter, for thinking, or sorry, for the former, for thinking about a corporation like an individual, a private entity, not a public entity. And he won that case. And ever since then, corporations really have been thought of as private entities, not public entities. Um, and that really, that divide between public and private is part of the reason why it's so hard to this day to regulate corporations. So there was a point at which, yeah, yeah, now we think of corporations as being fundamentally private, but that's a good point. When I when sometimes I think you hear about historical corporations, like, I, I don't know the East India Company or whatever. A lot of times they seem almost like quasi governmental in the way that they're that they're discussed. And so there's a point at which we had that choice to maybe keep corporations as being somehow chartered or or serving at the whim of the government. We had that choice, but we didn't take that route. You know, <laughs> Daniel Webster won his case. Uh, yeah. it was, uh, the Dartmouth College versus Woodward case. Case, uh, a classic case. Uh, and it's one of just uh, a number of these cases that when you go back through American history, you find that the Supreme Court has been ruling on the rights of corporations for a long, long time. To put this in some perspective, Adam, um, the first Supreme Court case 
uh, explicitly on whether African-Americans are protected by the Constitution was the Dred Scott case. It was decided in 1857, right before mm-hmm. the Civil War. The first Supreme Court case explicitly on whether women were protected by the Constitution was decided in the 1870s. Um, the first Supreme Court case on whether rights, uh, uh, whether corporations have rights under the Constitution was decided in 1809, a half century wow. before women and minorities. Just a couple decades came. after the founding of the nation. Right after the founding. And whereas we think of the Supreme Court as a bulwark for the protection of minorities, like women and uh, racial minorities, in, in truth, the, the court's rarely done a very good job of protecting the rights of minorities and women, at least before the mid-20th century. Right. And uh, both Dred Scott and the woman behind the first women's rights case in the Supreme Court, they both lost their cases. But the corporation behind the 1809 case was the richest and most powerful corporation in America at the time, and it won its case. And corporations have really been winning ever since. Have there not been any big losses? Oh, of course, they've lost plenty of cases. But part of the beauty of the of uh, the Supreme Court and litigation process for corporations is the corporations can afford the best lawyers and they can afford litigation. It's just the cost of doing business. And so even um, uh, you know even a case that looks like it's not going to be a winner, um, you know, it's just a, another way of just seeing if you can maybe strike down this law and with big profits to boot. Um, and yeah. if you lose, you lose. But it's not such a bad, it's just part of the cost of yeah, doing business for companies. If you're Standard Oil or Google, the cost of taking a case to the Supreme Court is what, a, a couple a couple lawyers and paralegals, you know, got to spend a couple years. That's not that much to you. Right. I mean, uh, to just put it in today's numbers, that kind of litigation, you know, is going to cost you like three or $4 million to take a case all the way That's through the nothing. system and up to the Supreme Court. But it's nothing to Google, but yeah. it's a lot to a civil rights organization. <laughs> right. Um, and so when we look back through American history, corporations have had the benefit of having the resources to use the judicial process and uh, and have hired great lawyers, uh, people like the Daniel Webster's, John Quincy Adams argued for the rights of corporations. And today there's a huge elite Supreme Court bar that's just devoted to arguing before the Supreme Court. And guess who they represent in the vast majority of their cases? Big corporations. Is there... <laughs> This is this is really stunning because, I mean, essentially what you're saying is that corporations have waged a massively successful civil rights movement under our noses that that nobody even discusses. I think we would both agree largely negative results unless you are one of the people personally profiting uh, from that. I mean, these are not organizations that are out for the common good. They're out for specifically the very narrow monetary benefit of their shareholders and executives. That is definitely what has promoted this litigation, an effort to promote profit, to for maximize profit for shareholders, and to fight against law and regulation. Um, some of it has been very ideological and uh, an idea that we need a free market and these laws burden the free market in a way that's wrong for a capitalist free enterprise society. Um, I will say the outcome, though, can be somewhat more ambiguous and nuanced. Uh, okay. It's not always all bad news. You know, Citizens United, when you lead to a corporate takeover of American democracy, it's hard to get much worse than that, I guess. Mm-hmm. But... Um, But the story is more complicated than that. In fact, one of the surprising things I found in my research is that in many instances, the key Supreme Court cases to breathe life into particular constitutional provisions were brought by business corporations. Hmm. So we think that maybe corporations would get rights after individuals have already won those rights. But in fact, in many cases, there are constitutional provisions that really were lifeless until a Supreme Court case came along. And that case might have been brought by a business corporation. I'll give you an example. Um, One 
one right that we hold dear, and Adam, you, you should hold dear, especially freedom of the press. Yes. Right? Um, but the earliest and most important and influential freedom of the press cases were brought by newspaper corporations mm. that were fighting back against censorship of the newspapers. Um, and they were business corporations. And one of the issues raised in those cases, they were litigated in the 1930s, was are corporations entitled to make these First Amendment claims and of freedom of the press? But think about it. You wouldn't have much of a freedom of the press if the New York Times company, a uh, media corporation, didn't right. have free press protect protections. So it can be more complicated than sort of all bad, all good. It's actually had some good consequences and had a bunch of bad consequences, um, but it's really um, uh, an important under way of understanding how the law has shifted and changed and developed. Yeah, and I suppose similar to the conversation about guns, it seems perhaps that rather than arguing, hey, corporations should or shouldn't have free speech rights, that's the wrong conversation to be having. We should be talking about, well, the specific rights that they're fighting for and that we're considering granting them, is it in our benefit for them to have? So I certainly would agree that a corporation should have a free speech in the sense of publishing material critical of the government, right? Um, but I would maybe argue against unfettered uh, <laughs> money flowing into our political system being a form of speech that is beneficial for us to sanction on a completely unregulated scale. That's right. And I think your perspective on that, uh, it mirrors my own. And, and actually really has a lot of echoes in American history. For the last hundred years, we've recognized uh, that corporations often need something like a freedom of the press right for the freedom of the press to be vibrant in checking the government and encouraging democratic deliberation and debate. But yet we've long thought that we should restrict corporations from spending their money on elections. Tell the story in the book of the very first campaign finance laws, which were adopted in the first decade of the 20th century, 1907. Um, and these laws were designed to restrict corporate money in elections. Campaign finance law was hmm. born of the idea of restricting corporate money in elections. And a hundred years ago, back in the prohibition, when in the run-up to prohibition, alcohol makers and brewers filed lawsuits challenging these campaign finance laws that were hmm. restricting corporate money in elections as a violation of the Constitution a hundred years before Citizens United. Back then, the court said corporations have no place in American politics and upheld the campaign finance laws. Wow. Today, in Citizens United, the Supreme Court rules the other way and says corporations belong in our political process. And it seems as though that is still a dominant view in our legal profession and in our you know, culture that that corporations should have that much. It certainly feels that we live in a society in which corporate rights are uh, given, you know, privilege over individual rights in, in many ways. Do you see any signs though of a pendulum swinging back, or or any uh, any movements that? you know, are gaining steam in any way. Well, there is a pretty vibrant movement to amend the Constitution, to add a 28th Amendment that would prohibit corporations from claiming the protections of any rights under the Constitution. Hmm. Um, and That would be is, a massive change based on what you've said. It would be a massive change. And it's really promoted by, uh, you know, the idea of opposition to Citizens United and cases like uh, Hobby Lobby and more importantly, Masterpiece Cake Shop, the wedding cake case. Um, uh, and the, this is supported by some very big 
groups like Public Citizen and Common Cause, Move to Amend, and Free Speech for People, and a bunch of these organizations, American Promise. Um, and I, I think it's a well-meaning effort. I think there really is an effort to try to think about how we can reestablish some sense of balance in American politics that, and not have it be taken over by corporate and wealthy interests, the 1%. Um, but um, I think it's going to be very difficult to amend the Constitution to eliminate corporate rights. And um, I think probably the amendment itself goes a little too far mm. uh, in that it could be read to deny the New York Times the right to freedom of the press. And uh, we don't want to get rid of all corporate rights, just the wrong ones. So what if we rethink the ways that we're organizing uh, corporations? For instance, I know there's the idea of like a public benefit corporation that that has a – in its charter a responsibility to, uh, you know, serve the public in X, Y, Z in addition to making profit. That Could those sorts of changes uh, uh, be of benefit? Yeah, I think w- there is a lot of um, innovative thought now on in the nature of the corporation and whether we – what's the place of the corporation in politics and society? You see Elizabeth Warren has come out with a proposal for co-determination requiring representation of workers and other stakeholders on boards of public companies. And again, the idea is to move away from the slavish devotion to shareholder profit. The difficulty is that um, there's some concerns that management would use um, the corporate resources to enrich and benefit themselves if freed up from the demands of shareholders. Because if shareholders don't like what they do, management can say, we're doing it for customers. If customers don't like what management does, management can say, we're doing it for shareholders. And then there's no way to hold management accountable. I, I would suggest in response to that, that it doesn't seem there's uh, management is all, all that accountable these days, yeah, flying in their like uh, private planes and taking these huge salaries. Uh, I'm not sure what we have to lose. Got it. What do you think of the prospects for actually doing that reimagining? The reimagining, imagining is wonderful. <laughs> imagining a different world is great. But when corporations already have have so much power, have so much rights, have the best lawyers, right? They have waged this incredibly successful civil rights campaign that dwarfs all the others in American history. Uh, do we have a chance to uh, uh, make that reimagining come to light, come to fruition? No. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, I, I say that jokingly, but I do – one of the, I think, implications of the story I tell in We the Corporations is how difficult it is to defeat the corporations. That one yeah. thing corporations are really good at is taking um, progressive reforms that were designed for other stakeholders and using them for the tools of business and free mm. enterprise. And we've seen that over and over again. And we think about something like corporate PACs. Like there are – people hate corporate PACs. They spend their monies. But who invented the PAC? It was labor unions. And it was only like mm. 30 years after labor unions started using them and the corporations decided to use them. They just decided to use them much more often and to greater effect. Um, And so we see that kind of – so whenever we reform the law for progressive purposes, corporations always manage to use it in some way for their advantage. So I'm always – I may be a little skeptical of our ability to shut the corporations out from American politics. And strangely enough, I think these days Americans want corporations to be involved in at least some politics. We see demands uh, for Dick's Sporting Goods to ban the sale of assault weapons uh, in the wake of a mass shooting, or people want their brands uh, to to fight against transgender bathroom bills in this state or that state. Like sometimes we we want our businesses to be on our side sure. too, increasingly. So I think we have a complicated relationship with the corporation and yeah. politics. Yeah, I, I mean, well, now especially we 
tend to identify with corporations much more than we used to, you know, that I, I, for instance, have, you know, I've used Apple products for most of my life and I identify with that corporation on some level. I, it's difficult for me not to. You're um, a Mac guy, they I'm say. A, You're a Mac guy. Uh, yeah, I'm a Mac guy. I'm, I'm, and very specifically, I grew up with Nintendo and I'm a Nintendo loyalist and I will be until I die. They inserted, you know, a loyalty to the company like in my in my heart and my mind at a very young age. But hey, luckily, that, that's just a weird company that makes video games, you know. Apple, though, um, is much, much larger. Um, and on a, to a certain extent, you know, you can, it's reasonable to have a positive feeling about, about that because like, Hey, um, you know, for instance, uh, Apple is very, very active with LGBT rights. They're very progressive and proactive in that area. Um, uh, largely because I think their leadership has made it so. Um, and that's something that people often look at and go, Oh, could, could corporations be sort of a, a vanguard, a way for us to exert ourselves politically and, and expand those rights. But then the only rights that are never going to get protected by that are the ones that would hurt the corporations bottom line, you know, um, it's easy for Apple to fight against discrimination, but it's, uh, a lot harder for them to fight against, you know, uh, reducing the amount of e-waste that we're being flooded with or, uh, redu- you know, reducing the amount of, uh, uh, intellectual property control in our society, things like that. Corporations are designed to pursue profit. That's how we've designed them, and in part because uh, we think that's going to lead to uh, greater growth and greater returns. And um, but there are you know serious consequences to having that kind of society in which we have these sort of rapacious corporations going out there and uh, and doing their thing. Uh, we think that what uh, might be great and beneficial for us today, um, you know, it's only the corporations uh, might be active in politics, but they're always going to be pursuing profit at the end of the day. And they'll uh, fight for transgender rights uh, when they think that's helpful for profit. They'll fight against the e-waste regulation because that hurts profit. And um, we shouldn't have any other expectation. Corporations can be useful tools in our political life if we want to use them in that way. Um, But we shouldn't be uh, fooled. Corporations may be people, um, but they're really pathological people. Well, uh, <laughs> well, in response to that, I, I'd like to return to the point that you made on our episode of Adam Ruins Everything about, I think you have a very optimistic point of view on the Constitution generally, um, that uh, even though uh, certain groups have had great success using the Constitution for their own ends, that does paint a picture of like our ability to change the structure of our society via advocacy. Um, And we might have a really uphill battle with corporations, um, but uh, the fact that it's malleable in that way does give us some reason for hope at the end of the day, no? I think so. I think that, you know, it's probably um, often been a false hope for people of a progressive mindset and been better for people of a more conservative mindset. I Mm. think the Supreme Court is a relatively conservative institution by the nature of how we figure out who gets on it and how they get appointed and the nature of the law as a conservative kind of project. Uh, one where the, the there's no greater authority in the law than precedent, right? That something's been decided, right? It's right. the ultimate kind of authority. It's the it's like the worst kind of parent. Well, it's because I decided it, so 
well, that's the, how the rule is. And you the know? fundamental original distinction between co- conservative and liberal being conservative being that, well, things should stay the same. You know, right. that's that's the old, old original meaning that that certainly is more connected to, yeah, this is precedent. That's the way things work. Well, that's right. And so I think courts are conservative in that small C kind of yes. uh, way of thinking about it. Um, uh, and so uh, maybe the court is not necessarily the place for progressives to think they're going to get a lot of great outcomes. Um, but look, you, look, you had a very important same-sex marriage ruling a couple years ago. That was an important expansion of rights that we'll talk about for uh, a century to come, I'm sure. Um, and so the Supreme Court can still play that role on occasion. But uh, the history of the Supreme Court is one that is mostly about helping big business and big corporations and only occasionally helping the dispossessed and the vulnerable. Okay. Uh, my mistake for asking you for an optimistic ending to the show, but I mean, that's the reality and sometimes that's the way the world is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show, Adam. It was really wonderful having you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm sure the sun's <laughs> coming out tomorrow. Guaranteed. <laughs> Hey, well, my thanks again to Adam Winkler for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I host fascinating conversations like this every single week, so I hope you'll give us a subscribe. And if you already are subscribed, I hope you'll rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at at Adam Conover. My upcoming tour dates are posted at adamconover.net. That's right. Couldn't get a .com. Didn't have the cash. Had to settle for a .net. Made my peace with it. Love it that way. adamconover.net. That's where you'll find my tour dates. And please tune in next week for another episode of Factually. And thank you once again to KiwiCo for sponsoring the show. KiwiCo makes wonderful subscription crates full of Steam projects for the kid or curious adult in your life. And they are offering Factually listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem the offer and learn more about the projects, visit KiwiCo.com Factually. Once again, that's KiwiCo.com Factually. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season 3 has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, Season 3 is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Fake nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Jesus! I mean, Jazos! (laughs) Ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season 3 of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.